Amen. And now hear the reading of God's Word as we prepare for the sermon. Text is uh, two different passages. First from uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. These are the words of God. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And then from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 and 44, through 44, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And these are the words of God. Let us pray. Holy Father, your word declares your good and gracious sovereignty in the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. These events were for us, and they are proclaimed in your word. By your Spirit now, grant us understanding and application. Show us the way of life. Show everyone here the way of life. Do so now, and do so in deeper ways, to the glory of your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we worship every Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and it is a renewal every, every week of, of the celebration of the resurrection, the new humanity, the new creation, the new way of being human. And so we start with worship at the beginning of the week now, ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But annually, we also celebrate his resurrection, remembering, uh, counting from the days of surrounding Passover and his crucifixion when he rose from the dead. Now, according, from, according to Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the assurance of his lordship over all creation. Listen to Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 4. It says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, and he was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Someone who dies and defeats death and is risen back from death is Lord over all of life and death, over all of creation. Not just resuscitated. People are resuscitated sometimes. But somebody who has victory over death, a man who has victory over death is a man who rules the world. A man who has the power to declare his lordship over all of creation. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. But it is also, the resurrection is also the assurance of his bodily return to this earth to judge all mankind. His bodily resurrection is an assurance that he will return to this earth to judge all mankind, everyone. And finally, it is also the assurance of our bodily resurrection from the dead in order to be brought to that judgment, either to eternal condemnation or to eternal glorification and everlasting life. And these two texts that we're going to be taking a look at, these two texts together compel us upon reflection, and it's my prayer they would compel you upon reflection to embrace, to celebrate, 
to believe and to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and his lordship over everything, over all the nations, over all creation, over you today. The resurrected Christ is Lord over everything, including you, even this day. So first of all, I want to see that the resurrection assures us of Christ's return and of his, of his return to judge the world. This is the first passage, again, chapter 17 of Acts 30 and 31. Now that's, that, that's uh, the end of a, of a sermon that Paul is giving on Mars Hill, the Oropagus, to the people of Athens, basically to the philosophers of Athens who would gather together and consider all of the different gods and all of the different ways of, of thinking about life and eternity and value and virtue. Well, on Paul's second missionary journey, this is, this is his second missionary journey, uh, you might recall that the Holy Spirit directs him away from Asia Minor. He wants to go back up into Asia Minor, this present-day Turkey. The Holy Spirit stops and instead directs him to Macedonia. And then from there, south to Athens. That's in Acts chapter 16, 6 through 10. When, it, when Paul arrives in Athens, he, his, it says that his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was full of idols. That's the beginning of chapter 17. It's said by the ancients that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. It's kind of like in Seattle, where it's easier to find a dog than a child. Athens was a city of enlightened philosophy, promoting tolerance and yet very snobbish about their highbrow intellectualism. As Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentiles, some called him a seed picker. That's translated babbler, but literally seed picker. He was a hillbilly. He was uneducated. He wasn't from the big colleges. He, he spoke about strange things. Well, Luke mentions that certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul, and this helps really fill in the story. So Paul, uh, Luke makes a, a point of noticing two, of, two groups of, of philosophers, two groups of those who would be gathering together to consider the ways of the world and the ways of life. One group was called the Epicureans, and the others were the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans, think about this carefully, the Epicureans were pure materialists. Everything you saw was reality and everything beyond that, there, there wasn't anything beyond that. There was no immaterial, spiritual, ethereal. It's just pure materialist. And they taught, that, therefore, that the chief goal in life was to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and the minimum amount of pain because this was it. This life was all there was. So do everything you can to get as much pleasure as you can and avoid as much pain as possible because then when the light goes out, it's, it's over. That's it. And then there were the Stoics, That's similar beliefs, but a, a little bit different. They, they, they also believed in, a, in, in trying to balance life with reason and virtue and accepting whatever fate brought, accepting as just what fate brought, with no acknowledgement of a divine person or any divine purpose for what was going on, but rather just kind of a grin and bear it tagline that they became known for, the Stoics. These would be among those who called Paul a babbler in verse 18 and later mocked him over the resurrection of the dead 
particularly over the, his, his doctrine of the resurrection of the dead in, in verse 32. Now, I want you to note that. I want you to keep that in mind um, and, and consider how similar our culture is to the Stoics and the Epicureans. Paul was invited to go to Mars Hill to Oropagus and make his case for Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, they actually thought, uh, the text kind of indicates that they thought he was talking about two different gods, um, Jesus and Anastasia. And Anastasia is the word for resurrection. So they, they thought, come and talk to us about these gods, Yesu and, um, and, and Anastasius. Jesus, Jesus is invited in to explain to them that, no, he's talking about one God and begins his discussion about the creator God in, in chapter 17. As he concludes his argument, I'm not going to go through his argument that he makes. I, I want to arrive now at verse 30 and 31, where he says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So he, he's looking back on all the different idolatries that took place. What, what he says is that while God had overlooked for some time the ignorance displayed throughout the world and exemplified in Athens, it was now time for all men to repent turning away from false teaching, teachings, worldviews, philosophies, idols, and false religions. So he says, very interesting sets of philosophies and worldviews and ways of thinking about life you guys have here. And God was, God was kind. He, there was a sense that you were seeking after truth. He acknowledges that. But I'm here to tell you that that time is now past. That, the, the, the idea that we could all just be seekers is done. There's nothing to seek anymore. Jesus is here. Jesus has res been resurrected from the dead. Jesus is Lord over all. That's verse 30. And the reason he says, the reason that he says this needed to happen was not because he was arrogant. It was not because he was mean. It was not because he was an intolerant person. It was because he loved the people that he was speaking to. And he knew that because Jesus rose from the dead, he was going to return one day and we'd all be under judgment each and every one of us would be under judgment. And the only way for salvation for anyone would be as if, if, they found them, if they were found in Christ. If they were found in Christ. Verse 31. Because he has appointed a day, Paul says, a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom has or, he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. His resurrection from the dead proves that he is God proves that he is Lord over all, and proves that his words were true. So Jesus said what he was going to do. He said what was going to happen to him, and then it happened. And so all the things that Jesus said were going to happen, or are going to happen, are also true. He said he proved it to you by, by, God proved it to you by raising his son from the dead. You need to hear this, because if you don't hear this, I'm telling you, God is coming, Jesus is coming, and he will return to this earth, and he's going to raise everyone up in the final judgment, and you need to know, you need to be found in Jesus Christ. These are not words of, uh, of a man who just wants everybody to think his way. Would you just, everybody has to think my way. No, he, this is a man who loves to see people saved. Paul would be thrown into prison. He would be mocked city after city after city. He would be left stone cold dead one time, they thought, and then he gets up and, and walks, uh, walks back into the very city that had thrown him out to stone him. He found himself shipwrecked, he says, on a number of occasions. 
And, and, and this man did this because he loved the gospel. He loved his Lord, and he wanted to see people saved from the great judgment. He knew the resurrection demanded that Jesus Christ would return and that his judgment would be true, that he would, he would know the hearts and intentions and the mind of each and every individual that he had created because he had created them. He had sustained them in their life. He had ordered their days, and now he would bring them to that final judgment. Turn, he says, repent, repent, and turn to this glorious Savior. If any dared to challenge this, Paul says that God has given all men assurance that this will happen. In fact, that word assurance, I think it's only translated in our English Bible, assurance only there. The word is pistis. It's faith. The word is faith. God has given faith, this faith, faithfulness, this trustworthiness about his word and proved it to you because Jesus rose from the dead. That assurance then is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now it's important to note that the resurrection of the dead was no more believable in, the, in first century Athens than it is for many in our modern scientific age. In fact, everything's kind of really turned around in the argument against Christianity today. One of the things that is said is that Christianity, you know, and belief in the resurrection and belief in those kinds of miracles, that's archaic, that's old-fashioned. We're, we are of the new mind. We're materialists. We have, a new, we have a new way of thinking about things. We're materialists. We believe that you just live for pleasure and avoid as much pain as possible as then it's all over. Or we believe that, that we ought to live for virtue and find a balance in life and stuff happens to you at times, but you know, you just have to grin and bear it. That's the new religion. Well, wait a second. Who was Paul talking to about the resurrection? Guys who had followed for um, teachers centuries before the older religion, the older way of thinking about life. Today's materialism and secular human, humanism views are actually the antiquated and old-fashioned views. Remember this next time that you are arguing for the gospel with somebody, and they say you're following old-fashioned and antiquated views. You say, who's calling who antiquated? Who's calling whose views old-fashioned? You're just an Epicurean, you know. And they'll say, well, who's Epicurious? And then you can tell them. <laughs> you see that? But Paul preached the resurrection, and, and, he, and he did so, and he wasn't afraid to preach what he knew they would think was foolish. He was not afraid to preach what he knew they would think is foolish. Not only did he preach the resurrection of Jesus, but he, he used that to then preach the fact that Jesus will come again from the right hand of the Father Almighty in order to judge the living and the dead, as our creed states. So there's no place for giving evidence for the resurrection. There's, there, there is a place, I'm sorry, there is a place for giving um, evidence for the resurrection. So we oftentimes, will, in our apologetics, will we'll think through how to, how to prove to people that in fact we can believe the historic validity of the story of Christ's resurrection from the dead. But our emphasis, we ought to follow Paul in this. We ought to follow the New Testament writers in this. Our emphasis is to be the declaration of the resurrection as proof of something else, as proof that Jesus is the Lord of this world, Lord, Judge, and Savior. 
Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, there is a day appointed for this general review of all that men have done in time and a final determination of their state for eternity. The day is fixed in the counsel of God and cannot be altered, but it is his there and cannot be known. A day of decision, a day of recompense, a day that will put a final period to all the days of time. This is what Paul preached. This is what Jesus declared. And this is what his resurrection sealed, signified and sealed. There will be a bodily resurrection. There will be a bodily resurrection of every person, just as there was a bodily resurrection of Jesus. And there will be this bodily resurrection of every person. The only people who will not be bodily resurrected is that on the day that Christ's return, um, all, all, of, all, all who are alive in that generation will be caught up together with those who are raised from the dead in the air as they greet the coming Messiah onto this earth. But for all the rest of us, the resurrection will be a bodily resurrection of, of us and of everybody else who has passed before. And then humanity will be divided into two and only two groups. We really should stop all this enmity between groups, ethnic groups and nations and races. We really should stop that. It's, it is, um, it's pitiable. It's, it's silly. C- certainly it's hurtful, but it's, it's, it's ridiculous on the face of it because we have all come from one blood, we are told. And there are only two groups of people. And the two groups of people will be identified, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, those who love the light, those who love the darkness. And that will be it. That will be the only way that the two groups will be identified. There will be those who remain in the first Adam, our covenant head, who threw us into hopeless condemnation and then try to justify and teach us all to justify our sins, our value, our worthness. But it's hopeless. And those who are found in the second Adam, that second Adam who was born into this race and yet without sin, and lived a perfect and sinless life, that second Adam who was crucified by our rebel leaders and in this way paid the debt for our sins, that second Adam who was resurrected into new life, which was the beginning of his exaltation, but only the beginning. And in such a way, this exaltation, in such a way that we are able by faith to see him in the preaching of the gospel and to join with him in that new life. Now, a first resurrection of sorts, a spiritual renewal, being born again. But his exaltation is perfected, will be perfected when he returns to judge the living and the dead on a particular day. When death is finally and completely and utterly killed. There was the death of death in the death of Christ, John Owen states, in his crucifixion. And yet we still all die. But there is no, there's no sorrow for Christian. There's no ultimate sorrow for Christian in the death because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. There's resurrection in eternal life. That, that, will, that will, will be of such an extent and of such glory that everything that happened, everything good and bad, everything um, mundane and everything super important will, will have faded in so many ways from our memories or will have been explained to us by God 
as to how it made deeper and deeper glory for us. Glory that we will enjoy forever if we are in Jesus Christ. His exaltation will then be perfected and death will be no more. So the resurrection assures us of Christ's return to judge the world. But not only that, the resurrection also assures us of our future incorruptible bodies. And so again, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. This comes from the, the great chapter, chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians, where, where Paul is arguing from the resurrection of Jesus for our resurrection, for our bodily resurrection. He says if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then it's all hopeless. But he did raise, he did, Jesus did raise from the dead, and so all of these things you need to understand are going to take place because of it. Now in verses 42 through 44, he's, he's establishing, he's showing the difference of the kind of body that we are going to have. It says, the body is sown in, corrupt, in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, we're going to talk about that in a moment. It is raised a spiritual body. So, it was not enough to offend the philosophers about life after death and a resurrection. That was a slap in their face. That already, that already caused them to, to think, as, as it says, many of them to mock him. But he goes beyond that. It was foolishness. It was foolishness to the Greeks to preach a bodily resurrection. They considered it to be foolish to think such ways. The body was, after all, according to their thinking, the body was simply a carrying case for our true essence, our spirits, our souls. The body was a shell that carried around who we really were. Now, this is a big problem today. This is a big problem today. Our bodies, we think, are, are, are malleable, can be changed however we think because they're not really us. The real us is somewhere inside. You can see today how that kind of lie is destroying people, destroying people in a sense of, of being able to, to identify, to understand who they are, body and soul, body and spirit made in the image of God. But the Greeks... Greeks have taught us well. In them, them, the body was just a carrying case for the true essence, our spirits. The spirit was, was true. The spirit was good. The, true, the spirit was the real thing. And it could be made good if it, if it was marred in any way. But it was the material world, including our bodies, that was corrupt, dirty, decaying. And our spirits needed to be delivered from them if we were going to truly attain holiness and perfection. We needed to leave our bodies. We needed to leave the material world. Now, this Gnostic view is often held today even by sincere but misguided Christians. That when you die, you, you, your spirit goes to heaven and that's kind of it. We float around in our spirits and won't that be wonderful? We'll be, and, and you can think, okay, well, because my body hurts or it's growing old or it's decaying or I'm, I, I'm, I die of this or that. We all die of something. And there is a sense of, of relief for being out of that. Isn't that enough that just I'll kind of float away? But that's not the gospel. You see, what you have to understand is God tells another story, a totally different story. 
He's the creator of all things. And when he created the material world, I don't know if you've read Genesis 1, but he created the material world, he called it all good. Day after day after day, good. In fact, finally, very good. God liked what he made. God liked the material world that he made by the power of his word. We are part of that material creation. We're made of matter. We have a spirit as well. Ever since the fall, our problem has been moral, not material. Our problem has really been more with our souls, with our spirits, not with our bodies. Our bodies have been deeply affected by the moral choices, by the moral choice of, uh, of Adam as our covenant head. In fact, because of Adam's fall, not, not just all mankind, but all creation, all the cosmos fell into a corruption. A corruption that is going to be reclaimed, a co corruption that is going to be taken care of at that final resurrection as all. The, the creation is not naturally corrupt. It's been held in bondage to corruption because of the fall. So I, I've got to read to you one more passage from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. You can listen, or if you like, you can turn there. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and following. Paul says these words. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that corruption, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation, listen, he's not just talking about us, but all of creation. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The, the revealing, the, our resurrection, the, the first Adam brought the sons of God into utter corruption. And creation itself can't wait to see the revealing of the sons of God. What, what, what God is going to do. What, God, what kind of transformation is going to take place to all of, all of creation as they see that happen through the revealing of the sons of God. It says, for, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. But we're not groaning in ourselves by the Spirit to be released from our body. We're groaning in, in the Spirit. The Spirit groans in us, listen, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What we're to learn here is that we do not have to deny the wrongness of any suffering. There is something wrong about death. There is something wrong about any suffering. There's something that's not right about it. But what is also not true is what, what is not true is that God somehow lost control. And now you're just going to have to roll with it. And hopefully one day it'll be all over, 
and you'll go to heaven. Instead, what you're to see is God has taken that very suffering, even that very death, and in it, and through it, and by it, he is creating what will be for you beyond your imagination, glory. Beyond your ability to imagine at this moment, glory with him. Eternal glory with him. That's what you're called to believe. That's what Paul says you must hope in, and you can't see it. But you're supposed to hear it. You're supposed to see it in the preaching of the gospel. You're supposed to see that there isn't anything in your life that will ever be wasted. There won't be anything that has gone on in your life that God cannot use for his glory and for your good. For your eternal good. Nothing. And, and don't you see, this is why Paul would go into Athens and talk to people with the stupidest philosophies that led to nothing but despair. And all kinds of selfishness. Just go grab for yourself whatever you can get and don't care about anybody else. Or try to live a moral life upstanding as best you can for who knows what good reason, because it's all going to be vapor and gone in any way. And people who start really thinking that through is begin to think, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And instead, God has come in the person of Jesus, in the preaching of the gospel, and say, there isn't anything in your life, nothing in your life, that doesn't matter to the one who created you, has sustained you, and has a plan for you to all eternity. Not a day goes by in your life that there, isn't, that there aren't activities, there aren't words, there aren't things that God isn't using, developing, planning. He says, it's kind of like a seed. And you think, well, how in the world is that? How does that make sense? How is it that, that the, the things of my life are going to have eternal and glorious significance? It seems so insignificant. Yeah, Paul says it's kind of like a seed. Just a little teeny seed. Paul, in defending this glory of the resurrection of his body, he presents life to us like a bag of seeds in a time of planting. He, he wants you to look at the world, you want all the people, <laughs> and, and think of, for just a moment, all, you're just a bunch of seeds. You're just a bunch of seeds, and there's, there are no plants. There are no trees, there are no flowers, just seeds. He wants you to look at the seed, and he's going to tell you, I'm going to make something incredibly, incredibly glorious from the seed. But what we're going to do is we're going to plant it in the ground where it's going to die. Right. This makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? Imagine. So in one sense, we're to look around and see nothing but seeds with a complete inability then to imagine the glory that will come forth. You're to go to graveyards and think of them like fields where the seed has been planted. That's what you should see. Similar to your garden in early spring, where there's nothing. <laughs> Maybe a, a few little mounds. What's in there? Seeds dying. What's going to come forth? I don't know. Dead seeds, I guess. No. The resurrection will be the great harvest of that field. And the seed metaphor is apt for two reasons, because there is complete continuity between the seed and the plant or the tree that will come forth. There's complete continuity. That, that flower, that came from a seed. That, 
oak tree came from a little teeny seed, right? So there's complete continuity, but there's at the same time complete discontinuity in the outward show, in the outward show of it. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't believe that it's going to go from this to that. You can't see the difference. And we, we're, not, we're not given um, a picture of it yet, except in, in these metaphors, in these, in these pictures of seed and tree. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Our bodies are now subject to corruption. We will rot in the ground. But they are also placed in the ground in death in order to sprout and grow in incorruption. And from dishonor to glory and from weakness to power. And then he goes on and he says also this, he says that it's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. Um, the, the, the natural body is the sukakos, it's the, it's the suke, it's where we get our word psychology, the, the, the words of the soul, the study of the soul, the study of, of the spirit, of life, of, of, of those things. And, and, and the sukakos, the sukakos, the Greek called the, the natural man, um, who was the man that had arrived, he would be the man who was at his best. He was mature, equipped, and prepared for the most, to be the most successful citizen. He was the sukakos. He was the suke. He was the natural man. And Paul says that natural man's going to die. But what's going to come forth is going to be the spiritual man. Now, the spiritual man is not the ethereal it's not, so it's not, the, the contrast is between a body animated by one type of life and the body animated by another type. And that first animation is by a, is by a type that's been corrupted because of the fall. But the, the, uh, the, in the final resurrection, this spiritual body, this spirit-empowered body, this life force of the Holy Spirit, this life-giving spirit, it says, of the resurrected Jesus will be ours, and we will live with him in that glorified body forever and ever, from glory to glory. So the resurrection assures us that, our, um, uh, that Christ is going to return to judge the world. And the resurrection assures us of our future incorruptible bodies that we will have. And that means that the resurrection assures you that your lives here are not in vain. Not in vain. He ends in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, truth be told, much of your work will seem like it's in vain. Much of your work you will not be able to connect to how in the world this is really making some kind of eternal difference in me or anybody else. God says, don't worry. I, I've, I've got it all under control. Because of the promises that I've given to you, sealed by the resurrection that is proclaimed, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, you need to understand, you need by faith to have this hope that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The doctrine of the resurrection is... Therefore, a great balm and a glorious hope. A great balm and a glorious hope. But, but, 
the doctrine of the resurrection is also a dire warning of personal and thorough and eternal judgment upon you as a rebel, a sinner, one who rejects the Messiah and your creator. But for those who turn from the resurrection, hear the words of life, then it is a glorious hope. You can only have that glorious hope if you have faith in the one who made the way for that glorious hope. Romans, speaking of this, says, Paul in Romans says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, there it is, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Christ's victory over the grave, over sin and death, declares his victory over your sin, declares his victory over your death, and declares his victory over every moment of suffering. In Christ, your little insignificant seed life is going to be worked into a measurable and eternal glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we are but little seeds, these soulish bodies of ours. Let that humble each man and woman here. But you, through Christ, offer us life, eternal life, glorious life. And the promise of our resurrection, along with all creation, to satisfy every good desire you have placed in us. Oh, grant us faith. Grant each one here saving faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.